You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Today's show is also brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Andrew, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Hartman, Gingrich, Misfit, Lisa, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we talked about some nebulous concepts concerning piracy, about the definition of piracy and its relationship to centralized state power, and I've heard some pretty great feedback on that. Some of you were intrigued by some of the ideas, some a bit less so, but some had some great examples of Western European medieval pirates that I did not mention. Roald, though, brought up an excellent point that I'd like to mention here. He brought up the distinct Western European focus of the episode and mentioned the giant elephant in the room, the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, I was focused on the West by design in that episode. It was after the Western Roman Empire fell, that all of that decentralization we talked about occurred. And I probably should have been more clear about that. But Roald did get me thinking. I really should have talked about the East. The Eastern Roman Empire, or by that point just the Roman Empire, it had serious pirate problems in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's also called the Byzantine Empire, and... In English, the word Byzantine tends to mean large and complex. You could often substitute it with labyrinthine, but there's also a sense that it's in regard to power, usually state power. And the Byzantines would have been the perfect example of what I was talking about last time. 
Their large, monolithic, centralized state had many of the same ideas, or at least similar ideas, of what it meant to be a pirate or an outlaw to those of ancient Rome. Ideas that date back to Cicero and the Roman Republic. Now, I did mention that those ideas were exported into the West, along with so much else, when the Eastern Empire fell in the 1400s. Along with the concept of really big, absolutist, Byzantine autocracies. And today we're going to be talking about those autocracies, but on the other end of the spectrum, we're going to be talking about one of the first real cracks in absolutism that really first begins to peak out during our time period. We're going to be talking about the concept and the history of the trial by jury. This is episode 253, My Prison Shall Be My Grave. This is not going to be some kind of comprehensive history of trials by jury. That's not something I'm capable of doing, and you probably wouldn't want me to anyway. It's really not even going to be some kind of overview. But we're about to get back to the crew of the Fancy, the members of Henry Avery's crew who were arrested and tried for high crimes and piracy. From this point on, trials are going to become more and more a common occurrence in the show, and I want us to have a grasp of what those trials really looked like. I think there's this image that some of us have of early modern trials, especially in England and France, and we are going to be focusing almost exclusively on England today, but an image of judges in powdered white wigs and that, you know, white lead face paint that was driving them slowly insane with bright red spots of rouge on their cheeks and long black robes. And he's just banging his gavel over and over and over, screaming, He's guilty! He's guilty! No, that's just me. Anyway, I think a lot of us have this image of a magistrate handing down judgment and sentencing all on his own private whim. And that's not always 100% inaccurate, especially in colonial trials. In the American Declaration of Independence, the founders accused King George III of, quote, depriving us in many cases of the benefits of a trial by jury. Because English subjects had the right of a trial by jury, they had for some time by the American Revolution. But that was a right often ignored by colonial appointments. It was so often ignored because a jury of the peers of the accused would also be colonials. In many cases, especially about things like taxes or royal authority in general, those colonial jurors would often side with the accused, even if the accused really was guilty. They'd be like, you know, yeah, he did it, obviously, but we're not going to convict him. It's your laws that are unjust here, so we're not going to send him to jail. And then, of course, you find yourself with a bit of civil unrest on your hands. Better by far just to convict and sentence the accused all on royal authority and keep those pesky Americans in line. You see the same thing with pirates all the time. When you let pirates stand trial before a jury of their peers and... You know, they're not really pirates' peers, but they're regular people. Well, those regular people might just side with the pirates. 
especially if the pirate has a good sob story or makes them laugh. But I think we should begin today with a look at how jury trials developed in English society, and how they tended to go by the time we get to the early modern period. Now, we could go back to ancient Greece or ancient Rome. They did have a sort of a jury trial system in both societies for certain offenses, but we're not going to. Most legal historians, at least of the few I've sampled, seem to take the English and American jury system back to ancient Germanic tribal customs. And it seems like a good place to start. Traditionally, they would judge the guilt of the accused based on the decision of a group of locals. Now, those locals were not a jury of their peers by any means, but those ancient courts did kind of look like modern law courts. The ancient Germanic peoples had a regional assembly that they called the Thing. In the modern Germanic or Scandinavian languages, it's usually called a ting or a ding, but in English, it's the root of our word thing. Another name you might have heard would be the folkmoot or volkmoot. These things were usually held semi-annually, although the timing and the makeup of these meetings changed depending on where and when you're talking about. But generally speaking, it involved all of the regional tribal leaders getting together in front of a meeting of all the landowning men from under their control. Naturally, these things could get rowdy and drunken and even violent, but at heart they were really a large meeting of what amounted to lawmakers talking about the issues that they had and coming up with solutions. And it was during these things, which could last a couple of weeks, that everyone held their criminal trials. The accused were the defendants, naturally, but the accusers acted as the prosecution. If you had something to say, you came out and said it. The accused, though, were permitted a kind of legal counsel, usually some old warrior who was there to vouch for the honor of the accused. These trials were overseen by those locals, I mentioned, but it's interesting that there were always twelve of them, chosen in equal proportion from each of the tribal groups that were present at the thing. These twelve elders would pass judgment and sentencing on the accused. Now, it's not a jury of one's peers. These were the longbeards, wise old men, right? But of course there were shenanigans involved, when only twelve certain people decide the fate of everyone who's on trial. They were supposed to be above personal bias, but if somebody killed your nephew in battle, you might have a bit of bias there. It was an imperfect system, but it was imported virtually whole cloth to Britain during the Anglo-Saxon and Viking invasions. The thing is the basis of British legal tradition. And for a long time, for most of the people living in Britain, this is basically how it went. You know, there were naturally innovations to remove some of that bias. Relatives and friends were barred from serving as jurors, and instead of twelve dedicated longbeards, they called in different wise elders every court trial. But the basic structure didn't really change. There was an interesting development near the end of the Anglo-Saxon period, 
in which Ethelred the Unready introduced a change in which the jurors were each personally responsible for investigating the crime in question. They had to go out there, question the witnesses, look for evidence, and come to their own conclusions. That's a fascinating development, but it didn't last long because, before long, the Normans invaded. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The Normans introduced the magistrate system, a continental development in legal proceedings. This was essentially a royal representative to sit in on all trials worthy of a royal representative. Now, at first, this wasn't all bad. In fact, in some cases, it was actually a pretty big and great innovation. These magistrates did not come from the region in which they were hearing trials. Therefore, they didn't have any bias. They just didn't care about petty feuds going back for generations, so it led at first to a ton of grievances being solved and cases ending relatively quickly. The people hated it because they loved their petty feuds, but it was good for the country. But the magistrate system expanded and expanded under successive kings. The trials that were thought worthy of a magistrate became more and more small time. You know, we're talking about things like a patch of land, a few hides of land that two farmers might dispute over, the magistrate from the king would have to make those distinctions. As the Plantagenet dynasty got on in years, the decisions made by these royally appointed magistrates tended to favor not one party or the other, and certainly not who was in the right, but they tended to favor the crown. If you've got a dispute with your neighbor over a few hides of land and you bring it before the magistrate, his decision might just be to take it away from both of you. And just to be sure, we're going to take a few extra hides from both of you, and we're going to make that royal, protected forest land. That way we can be sure that there won't be any further disputes between you two, you see. However, if you decide to go on to that protected royal forest land and hunt game or cut wood... We will kill you. Trial over, next case. Oh, and by the way, 
If you come before me looking for a marriage license, be aware, I'm going to sleep with your pretty new bride. Just, you know, FYI. It was a bad, bad system. And everyone knew it was a bad system, which brings us to the Magna Carta. The injustice of their justice system was one of the major complaints that the nobles had against King John. The Magna Carta reads, in part, quote, No free man shall be captured or imprisoned, or deceased of his freehold, or of his liberties, or of his free customs, or be outlawed, or exiled, or in any way destroyed, nor will we proceed against him by force, or proceed against him by arms, but the lawful judgment of his peers, or by the law of the land. End quote. And when it says the law of the land, that did not mean the law of England. It meant the local customs that, by that point, usually also meant a judgment of their peers. And the nobles enacted the Magna Carta, so, you know, job's done, right? We have jury trials now. Well, not quite. While the Magna Carta did do some good at first, it became pretty irrelevant pretty quickly. The next few hundred years of English history were a struggle between the nobility, later the parliament, and the crown. As the years marched on, the trials that were covered by that article in the Magna Carta, you know what offenses they meant, well, they were chipped away at by successive kings. You know, at first, treason, absolutely, that had to be heard by the king, but... Then what about murder and lower and lower and lesser trials? A few decades later, the trials that were heard by juries of their peers were down to basically, like, petty larceny. And sometimes not even that. You know, did you steal a loaf of bread? Well, how big a loaf? Okay, the jury can deal with that. This all reached ahead during the reign of the most absolutist king of England, at least... The king who came closest to making England an absolute monarchy. And we're talking here about King Charles I, the one who got his head chopped off. In David Hume's classic 1762 History of England, the first volume here, Hume describes all the powers that the king had accumulated after the Magna Carta, all that he had reclaimed, including, notably, the hated and dreaded Star Chamber. Hume writes, quote, One of the most ancient and most established instruments of power was the Court of Star Chamber, which possessed an unlimited discretionary authority of fining, imprisoning, and inflicting corporal punishment, and whose jurisdiction extended to all sorts of offenses, contempts, and disorders that lay not within the reach of common law. The members of this court consisted of the Privy Council and the judges, men who, all of them, enjoyed their offices during pleasure, and when the prince himself was present, he means the king, he was the sole judge, and all the others could only interpose with their advice. There needed but this one court in any government to put an end to all regular, legal, and exact plans of liberty. For who durst set himself in opposition to the crown and ministry, or aspire to the character of being a patron of freedom, while exposed to so arbitrary a jurisdiction? I much question whether any of the absolute monarchies in Europe contain, at present, so illegal and despotic a tribunal. 
While so many terrors hung over the people, no jury durst have acquitted a man, when the court was resolved, to have him condemned. The practice also of not confronting witnesses to the prisoner gave the crown lawyers all imaginable advantage against him, and indeed there scarcely occurs an instant during all these reigns that the sovereign or the ministers were ever disappointed in the issue of a prosecution. Timid juries and judges who held their offices during pleasure, and when he says pleasure he means the pleasure of the king, never failed to second all the views of the crown, and as the practice was anciently common of fining, imprisoning, or otherwise punishing the jurors merely at the discretion of the court for finding a verdict contrary to the discretion of these dependent judges, it is obvious that juries were then no manner of security to the liberty of the subject. End quote. David Hume was a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, and as you may have guessed from that passage, a major influence on the American founding fathers. You know, when they complained of being deprived of trials by jury, that was pure Hume. The point I want you to take note of there is mentioning the jurors at the discretion of the court being fined or imprisoned or otherwise punished for coming to a verdict that the judge did not like. That was common practice for absolutist monarchs. The Star Chamber, the most hated of all courts in England, was abolished by the Parliament in the year 1641. This was a big step toward liberty, however, it was also one of the opening salvos in the English Civil War. The march toward judicial liberty kind of gets tossed into a blender because of the war and then the interregnum under Cromwell, and finally, the restoration of the Stuarts in the person of King Charles II. King Charles, though, was of the opinion, a decidedly strong opinion, that all of his ancient prerogatives of king, the reestablishment of the Star Chamber, for instance, the absolute authority of the monarch in all judicial matters, that those should be restored to him as well as the throne. The Parliament did not agree. Those first few years of his reign were a boxing match over many of these exact issues. The first real showdown between the ancient royal prerogatives and liberty occurred during the trial of two Quaker ministers, William Mead and William Penn. Now, I should be up front here. I love William Penn. I don't always agree with him. Honestly, I usually disagree with what he has to say. Usually. But I can't get enough of the way he says it. I mean, he's such a fun, rabble-rousing historical character. He's fun to read about and fun to talk about. So I have to fight not to turn this into a William Penn biography. Before William Penn sailed for America and founded Pennsylvania, he was in and out of jail for years, mostly for his religious teachings. He wrote a book called Truth Exalted that just excoriated every Christian religious sect in England except for his Quakers. Catholics he called the Whore of Babylon. Puritans he called, quote, hypocrites and revelers in God. The Church of England, and I'm pretty sure this is a direct quote, was weak sauce. Because of that book, William Penn was imprisoned. Now, this wasn't officially a blasphemy charge, but it was a blasphemy charge. 
A couple of years later, he wrote a book called No Cross, No Crown that argued that the church and the state came between human beings and the Lord. He argued for a return to a primitive Christianity and for a rejection of authority figures in all churches and in the English nation, also for some crazy ideas like the abolition of slavery and to give women a voice in church and government. When he was arrested for this next offense, he said, quote, My prison shall be my grave before I will budge a jot, for I owe my conscience to no mortal man. End quote. And you see what I mean about William Penn. When he was finally released for this most recent book, he only had a couple of weeks free before he was arrested again. This was when he and William Meade were arrested in August 1670 on charges of unlawful assembly. They were holding a Quaker service, which violated the Conventicle Act. Back in 1664, the king passed the Conventicle Act that barred anyone from attending any religious services in England of any denomination other than the Church of England. As soon as this act was promulgated, a group of Jewish leaders from all around England came before the king and asked him, you know, what's this all about? Are you saying we can't be Jews anymore? And the king said, whoa, no, 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 you guys are fine. I'm only talking about Christian sects. Now, this act was never intended to persecute the Jews, only Christians who were not Anglican, but it had an unintended effect. This gave the Jews their first rights in England and thus made them officially, legally speaking, subjects of the English crown and led to all sorts of other, later advancements for the Jewish people of England. Now, William Penn had been tossed in jail a number of times by this point, and while he had sat before a couple of juries, usually he was just tossed into jail. They held him on religious grounds, which was kind of a loophole. But unlawful assembly was a purely legal offense, so he was going to once again sit before a jury. Now, these two men, Meade and Penn, were not the only two persecuted Quakers in England. At this moment, there were thousands of Quakers all across the kingdom rotting away in jail cells. This persecution can't really be compared to something like the Holocaust, but there is a similarity here. The first stages of the pogroms against the Jewish people of Nazi Germany were largely supported by the people of Germany. A majority of the people were fine with limiting their rights and limiting what business they were allowed to do, that kind of thing. But as things began to get worse and worse for the Jewish people of Germany, when they began to disappear in the middle of the night, people began to say, hey, you know, we might not like these people, but this seems like a little bit much. Those who did speak up, of course, were soon taken away by the Gestapo and would join those Jews who they did not like but kind of defended in the concentration camps. The Quakers were not popular in England, but after seeing so many of them get arrested merely for, what, holding church, the people of England began to realize this is a bit much, guys, maybe we should step back. So this jury that was here to condemn William Penn and William Meade found them not guilty of holding an unlawful assembly. The judge was not happy with this. He told them to come up with a different verdict, and they said, no, this is what we decide. 
So then the judge threw the jury in jail. He threw a jury into cells because he did not like the verdict to which they came. Beyond that, he didn't even feed them. He ordered that they not be brought food. The next day, the jury was brought back into the court with William Penn and William Meade, and the judge asked that jury if they had reconsidered their verdict after a night of empty bellies. And the jury had not. The judge replied to them, quote, You shall go together and bring in another verdict, or you shall starve. At which point the officers of the court dragged the jurors and the accused away. While they were being dragged away, the William Penn yelled out to the jurors, You are Englishmen! Mind your privilege, give not away your right. And the foreman of the jury, a man named Edward Bushell, responded, We will not. Those twelve jurors spent yet another night in jail without any food. That's two days now. The following day, those jurors were returned to the court and asked had they now changed their minds. And still they said no. Now, the judge couldn't rightly actually starve them to death, so instead he threw them in prison and said they could be given, you know, enough to maybe keep them alive, but he also fined them for their impudence a year's wages. It was the kind of thing that really infuriates you when you think about yourself in a situation like that, but it was also a key moment in English legal history. The future had the possibility to shift because of the decision that these jurors made, and they did not back down. There was a public backlash to the treatment of these jurors, even, at one point, unrest in the streets. It threatened to boil over into a real revolt. Edward Bushell appealed the judge's decision to a higher court, and then he had to appeal it to a court after that. Now, that yet higher court was probably going to overturn his appeal as well, but at this point, there was a very real fear that the Stuart monarchy just might get overthrown again. And it wasn't just commoners in the streets here. There were wealthy lords with soldiers at their command that expressed their displeasure with this man's treatment. Those jurors, most of them, spent several months in jail, but eventually new judicial rules were enacted, that said jurors could not be imprisoned or fined or even fired for the verdict that they handed down. This changed the standard of English law practice forever. It sanctified the verdict of a jury of your peers. It was the dawning of a new day of liberty for the English people. Next time, the English crown is going to trample that right into the dirt. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like the Maritime History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com.
As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.